Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Arthur Snell. A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Welcome back to Doomsday Watch. We hope you're finding these war bulletins valuable. A quick reminder that you can support our work on the crowdfunding app Patreon from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Hello and welcome back to Doomsday Watch. Regular listeners will be familiar with Dr Alexander Clarkson, who's an academic at King's College London and a specialist on the geopolitics of Europe's borders. And that, of course, brings us directly to Ukraine. Alex, it's great to have you back. Hi, nice to talk to you. Alex, uh, there's so many things we could talk about, but right now I think it's time to revisit the question of Europe's dependence on Russian energy. So back in February, we had these big moments when European countries, especially but not uniquely Germany, countries that had become very dependent on Russia for their energy, Russia's gas in particular, were able to announce these world-changing policies, the so-called Seitenwender that Chancellor Schultz mentioned, and that, that explaining that they would wean themselves off uh, Russian oil and gas. But now we're in July and things are looking a bit trickier. It's not clear that they're going to manage that. And it's also not clear that Europe is united in its approach to this very challenging issue. So here we are. What, what, what do you think uh, the situation is right now? Well, I think uh, what we've seen, what we're seeing now, is we're in the middle of the period where of policy implementation. So that's a period where a lot of outcomes are open, where a lot of things are, uh, where a lot of the process is particularly driven by Robert Habeck, who's the federal minister for economic affairs and climate change, basically yeah. also the energy ministry. They changed it from climate change to energy ministry in, in a sort of very red uh, SPD green move yeah. um, a few months ago, and um, so. What we're seeing is is a kind of a policy process which is running at full tilt. And I think that's something where we have to keep in mind what the panic is for. Sometimes panic is good. So there's this atmosphere. We just had an announcement recently by the EU Commission as well. And that would say greater measures on an EU level to coordinate gas. So part of this panic, part of this frantic movement, really all across the board on every part of the European, and this isn't just Germany, it's every EU state at the moment, in its energy and, and, and business and industrial manufacturing sectors, is a sudden shock and realization in February that time had been wasted between 2014 and 2022. Remember, Russia, the, the Putin regime seizes Crimea in February 2014. So clearly that's a moment in time where, we're, where, where Putin and the Russian state have 
positioned themselves in, in a hostile position towards the European European integration and the, and the EU's wider system. Yeah. But those years were wasted. Even deals yeah. were even completed to do North Stream 2. So you have this realization a few months ago. And now you have this frantic movement to catch up on the time wasted, to do in a few months what should have been done over six or seven years. On the other so- side... Things are being done. I mean, this is the, there are massive projects being put underway in an atmosphere that I can I've never seen anything quite close to it in Berlin. But I mean, I, I would never have thought of using this term about German politics and German policy. But it is war mobilization. It is a war mobilization level of uh, at which the German government is operating. Wow. Same with the Italian government. Same with the Spanish government. And I think there is a tr- contrast to be drawn with the UK government. Yes, the Germans are behind. The Europeans are behind, and they are in serious trouble. But they know they're in trouble. Yeah. And they're working to move against it. If you hear from Whitehall, there are plans in place, but almost no coordination. So in some ways, I would worry about Germany, Italy, and the EU. But in some ways, I worry most about the UK because there's so little sense of urgency on the UK side. Even though if the UK got it together, it could be in less trouble than its EU partners in much of this. But it needs to get it together as quickly as possible. Yeah. Well, let, let's come back to the UK in a moment. But just on that, on the sort of uh, Germany, Italy, Spain um, well, some some countries, of course, are blessed with geography that gives them easier access to alternative sources of energy. We know that southern European countries have been reaching out to Algeria, for example, and, and, and there's an obvious opportunity there. But Germany, what is Germany going to do? You talk about this sort of war mobilization. Where, in practical terms, will other sources of energy come from? I think that, well, there's the, first of all, LNG, liquid natural gas. So there's yeah. massive projects being opened up um, and they're going to, they're setting up terminals already now for Stade and Lubmin. These are all coastal cities. Yeah. And these are massive projects to really in breakneck pace to set up LNG infrastructure to be, have it functional by about this time next year yeah. to enable to have both emergency as well as regular capacity of LNG to largely replace Russian gas and Russian gas sources. Why does wider um, coordination across the entire EU pi- European pipeline infrastructure? So again, this is stuff that should have been done over the last few for years, but now the EU is playing a central role in coordinating more integration of pipelines so that the fact that the Italians who moved extraordinarily quickly, I mean, it was really quite remarkable, also shows how important it is, like the Italians have this partly state-owned um, energy company, ENI, which is yeah. a huge element of the Italian state. You know, they had that asset that enabled them to move really quickly to get gas contracts with the Algerians. Still to have won't replace Russian gas in the next few months, but again, it's a massive move. So to pipe that, say, from Italy or Spain up to up, up to Germany and other European countries. So there's a lot of coordination activity taking place. There's a lot of moves to save energy, to up the pace with renewables. There's a controversial debate over nuclear, though I think that's largely a distraction. There are other ways in which nuclear can play a huge role. You don't have to keep the German reactors going that'll be shut down. You can sort of redistribute energy networks so that you know countries like France or other countries that have a nuclear network can also pipe energy to Germany, and Germany can pipe energy to them, vice versa. Yeah. There's an immense amount of work taking place. And it is, I'd say, it's the closest we'll ever see, I think, bar a proper war to industrial war mobilization. Yeah. And I think that's, a, that's if we speak of Zeitenwende, of an epochal shift, that's one of several epochal shifts taking place at the moment across the European and the EU political order. And then if we look at this at the European level, as you uh, observed, there's, there's been recent uh, kind of uh, proposals out of the commission. And in a way, it seems that the toughest moment is going to be the winter of 2022-23, when some of these new projects are not yet on stream, uh, there will still be a need, presumably, to rely on Russian energy sources. And the Russians, of course, will want to extract 
the highest possible price, both literally and, and geopolitically. But the EU Commission is talking about some sort of uh, collectivization of energy uh, risk, if you like, across the continent. Do you think that's likely to fly? I think it's likely to fly if there is a genuine emergency. And I think this is a classic pattern in, in the EU. A lot of things that seem impossible suddenly become very possible. For example, the response to COVID and, and, and the vaccination coordination and program, the emergence of an EU HERA, an EU kind of health uh, emergencies agency, which is going to play a prominent role in, in Europe-wide planning from now on. These are all things that should have happened before the crisis, but invariably an EU style emerged during the crisis in response to it. We will go back to the Eurozone crisis and maybe in future something like a stronger sense of European defense and you know strategic and defense autonomy. Maybe that will emerge when the Americans leave yeah. and uh, Europe. And I think that that I think it's the EU Commission's proposals, I think, are pretty balanced. They're well prepared. I mean, this stuff has been prepared extensively in the Commission in Brussels for years. They've been wanting to present and propose this for a very long time. So part of this is just putting pulling things out of shelves and cupboards and putting them down on the table and saying, now it's time, guys. Now we have to move on this. Um, and I think the, the Commission also has a pretty good instinct about how far to push things. So that means a lot of this still involves a lot of consent and engagement coordination with member states. In the German or Italian other contexts, you have a lot of regional or even city-wide um, electricity companies, electricity networks that have to be coordinated. I mean, this is not an amateurish or, or sudden thing. This is, again, as with, say, strategic defense coordination and other things taking place at the moment. It's a product of years of dis debate and discussion and planning, but it was only going to be possible in it to bring this out and get well, broad acceptance of it in an emergency scenario. And the emergency scenario is coming. It's entirely plausible that, say, Russia shuts down gas exports to Europe completely. I mean, it would be yeah. in the long term economically suicidal for Russia. But I think if the Russians realize the Europeans are, are genuinely serious about getting off Russian gas by next summer, if they haven't noticed what these LNG projects mean for them, that the Germans are setting up in Lubminenstadt, then, then they will notice it once the Germans start having that infusion of LNG um, over time. But I think as the Russians see these contracts and future planning emerge, they could very much do a Leroy Jenkins kind of suit, you know, kamikaze <laughs> move of, of basically, you know, shutting down the gas supplies to Europe and hoping the Europeans fall apart before that. But I think as ever, as I mean, I think we find this with American and UK commentators in other contexts, the Russians tend to underestimate the Europeans. The Europeans are slow. Right. And when it yeah. comes to policymaking, but as we saw with the Eurozone crisis or to a certain extent, the migration crisis, when they decide that the EU system is under existential threat, they move. And when they move, it can be quite sudden and quite a shock to the rest of the global geopolitical order. But I mean, I think there is a flip side of this debate to ask, why does the EU always have to find itself in existential threat before it right. actually does things that are sensible in the first place? Yeah, the sort of long-term forward planning piece, uh, certainly it, it requires these crises, as you, as you observed, it requires these crises for people to actually make a decision to do something. Exactly. And I think that's fine. Even might get the Europe through in terms of the energy crisis. I think if you're thinking about the strategic autonomy, right, we're still, we're still in military sense and military integration, it's still glacially slow. And in, 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 if we compared us, compared this to where the Europe was in terms of monetary integration, like the development Eurozone, we're still sort of like in the early 1980s in terms yeah. of developing a shared currency. Yeah. But the thing is, with currency integration, even in the worst crises, Right in 2010, 2011, when suddenly decisions that were that were intended to take decades were being made in hours, in a military context, if the Americans leave Europe under Trump or a successor, you know, under a Trump-like figure later on, yeah, the Europeans don't necessarily have that even the room to breathe that they have in the eurozone crisis. So, some this has to be rethought. This 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 model of European development of crisis-driven integration.
Yeah. Well, I want to get on to that. Um, but as a sort of way into that, talking about the winter crisis first, um, as, as you rightly said, the EU is, is quite good at focusing its mind when a crisis falls. But there are certain factors in the mix there that may make this very difficult. So Obviously, uh, it, Italy's government is, uh, as not for the first time, you know, could be could be unstable. You could have a really severe cost of living crunch across Europe. The pressure on individual political leaders to effectively fold and to perhaps push the Ukrainians into some kind of agreement with Russia in in the face of incredibly difficult domestic political considerations. How do you think Europe is going to manage that? I think it's a matter of time. I think if 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 European leaders can um, generate the funds and generate the collective funds and structures to handle a three to four month, two to three or three to four month crisis, they can get through this. Yeah, I always like to say it's a little bit like rip ripping a plaster off. Mm. The really scary bit about ripping a plaster off, if when you're a kid, is is not when you actually rip the plaster off. It's when you're staring at your arm and saying, "Am I going to? Oh God, this is going to yeah. hurt." It's the lead-in rather than the actual. It's moment. the lead-in. It's. I think European yeah. governments, to be able to get through the crisis, have to manage expectations during the lead-in, but also give their populations before it hits the confidence that everything is not. Everything is under control. Goes a little bit far, but the idea that yes, they're also going to look out for the individual European yeah. industry and citizen. I think a lot of the German government messaging that is very frantic and very loud is also partly about saying to German voters, "Look, we 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 have your back. We know yeah. this is a problem. We know this is coming. It's a way for somebody like Robert Habeck." or Olaf Scholz, to go to the German public and say, we have been working 24-7. I mean, Habeck almost ritually, you know, several times a week comes on press and says, he looks tired and knocked out. I think there's mm-hmm. something a little bit performative about that. Like, you know, I'm working 24-7 and I was here and we were there. Yeah. Like, There's a sense of governments understanding that they have to communicate that they're on this. Right, and I think sometimes maybe a little bit of the more panicky and doomery kind of of, of 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 rhetoric is actually in some ways opening up a bit of a space for if things turn out a little bit better, even though it's still a terrible crisis. If things turn out a little bit better, they can say, "Look, you know, it could have been worse." Yeah. But in terms of the Italian government, there is a problem in terms of say economic policy, pensions policy, and other parts of the Italian apparatus that the current political price is going to generate. I don't think it's going to generate a crisis of support over Ukraine or over energy. Well, the interesting thing is the extent to which the main far, it's a far right opposition party, but for ideological reasons of its own, it supports Ukraine yeah. and doesn't particularly like the Russians. There's a lingering element of anti-communism with FTE, which is kind of interesting in that context. And, um, you know, they're, they're very, na- I mean, I don't like them. They're very nasty and they, they, they risk pulling the Europe in the wrong direction over a whole set of other policies. But they are sort of weirdly pro-European in the sense that they don't question European integration. They just want to pull European integration to a far-right direction, which obviously has to be resisted. So oddly enough, you know, you do have this kind of consensus in the Italian system. There's greater hostility, not among the Italian population, but the Italian bureaucratic apparatus because of what the Russians have done in Libya. That's seen in Italy and Turkey as, you know, it's seen as Italy and Turkey's turf, so to speak, from yeah. the Italian perspective, not Russia's. And finally, there's been a, this work, this move on Algeria. There was a reason why the Italian government moved so quickly. Because it saw the gas conscious in Algeria. The Spanish screwed this up really badly. I'd worry more about the Spanish in terms of the fact that Italians actually, there was a bit of a zero-sum game, and that's another area in which the EU Commission has to play more of a coordinating role. So in the context of Algerian gas supply, I mean, the, the Algeria Sonatrax, the Algerian uh, the gas and uh, oil industry, so that's the main firm driving it. 
Um, it has limited capacity, so it has an enormous potential. Same with Libya and, and the NOC and the Libyan gas suppliers. So they have enormous export potential. And so it's always a bit of a problem where the EU Commission needs to play a more central role in going to Italy, going to United Italy, going to Repsol in Spain, to make sure that one European actor going to Algeria and making all these huge Algerian gas contracts, which helps Italy, doesn't necessarily cut out another European state with Spain. And the Italians weren't even deliberately trying to cut the Spanish out. It was simply they moved faster than the Spanish. And the Spanish have a huge set of problems with Algeria anyway, because the Spanish have, have shifted the support to Morocco. So it comes back to the fact that Algeria is really a central partner for the Europeans on the level of Ukraine, on the level of, of, of uh, Turkey, on the level of, say, Libya or Tunisia. And Algeria is a hugely important state for the European system. And it is very frustrating that EU engagement, European engagement, and frankly also UK engagement with Algeria has not been adequate to the importance Algeria plays to the security, prosperity, and stability of Europe. The Spanish have screwed up the relationship with Algeria over reasons to do with Western Sahara and relations with Morocco. So the Italians moved. Mm. So in some ways, who's a little bit more exposed here is actually the Spanish. So I think in some ways we focus a little too much, too much on the winter. But I think if it's a two to three, a three to four month crisis and we get through to March 2023 and it's been more or less handled and then all these new moves for LNG and supply kick in, then yes, it's still going to be rough. But the plaster will have been ripped off, to, to finish that metaphor. Yeah. Right? And then we're through. And I think that's where the Russians, the Russians are actually running. The, the idea that Putin has infinite amounts of time is just off. He has cards to play until about spring 2023. Right. And then, then he's he loses. Done. Yeah. 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 Then he's out. Let's talk a bit about UK. You you sort of hinted that perhaps on energy, wouldn't it be fair to say that the UK is quite well placed, partly because of geography, we, we can access the Atlantic LNG convoys, yeah. uh, but also um, you know we we've 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 never been as dependent on on Russian energy supplies. So so we're just we don't have such big choices to make. This is what I find so crazy about the UK position. The UK, partly for the reasons you said, also access to Norwegian Dutch. I mean, there's, there's a whole North Sea network uh, of gas production. The Norwegians play a huge role in that as well. In theory, if the UK government was currently working full tilt on coordinating with business and industry, of preparing for what, you know, when the, when the, when the energy price cap is removed, you know, gets shifted again in, in yes. late September. That's right. You know, there's a lot of preparatory work the UK government needs to do to get through this without a mess. And any... I mean, Theresa May, I'm not even talking here about, you know, Churchill or, <laughs> or, you know, Thatcher. I'm talking about, you know, or Wilson. I'm talking here or Atlee. I'm talking here about even the Theresa May government or the John Major government or the Gordon Brown government. Although that's, that's a bit, I'm just telling Gordon Brown a bit, you know, would have the capacity to do the basic preparation and planning to get the UK through. I mean, the, 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 there was a lot of plans already in place in Whitehall that need activation, but they require somebody at the highest level of the civil service, where is where is the person doing daily press conferences or weekly press conferences running around the country and coordinating with industry and, and just making sure that the UK is not exposed to what is going to be, even if the UK is in a slightly better position, like the Dutch, the Norwegians, or the Irish, uh, even if they're in a slightly better position, 
you know, they're still going to be hit by a massive price spike. Yes. There's still going to be, you know, really difficult decisions and choices about how to distribute a Europe-wide energy network. For all the discussion of the UK leaving the EU, the UK is still part of a collective European energy network. Yeah. You know, and then there's questions about for all the hostility between the UK and the EU. This is about cross-European solidarity. And if the German economy runs into serious trouble for a few months or longer over, over gas supplies, the UK industry and manufacturing is still part of Europe-wide supply chains. That affects yeah. everyone in Europe. Yeah. Right. And so this is what is so crazy about the UK situation. The UK is probably situated well with some preparation and with some planning to get through this all right. But it requires the basics of governance. And my concern is because the Tory party is in such chaos, if the UK government and society doesn't acknowledge that there's a problem coming at it, it won't be able to use the advantages that the UK does have to handle it. So I've never seen it's slightly mad, actually, that a country that has the wherewithal and structures to get through this. It's just, it's nothing. It's crickets. Yeah, it is. It is it's a, bit, a bit of mind boggling. Um, with that, we sort of turn, I suppose, turn our gaze across the Atlantic to the US. And of course, at the moment, you know, one of the things that the UK government would rather you didn't know is that it's uh, the US is really leading the way on support to Ukraine. And the UK's role is important, but it's, you know, the US in, in just in terms of scale and quantity is still leading the pack. But the US is not that far off now from its midterm elections, which are looking very difficult for the Democrats. And then a longer term perspective, 2024 presidential election, again, a pretty tough environment on current basis uh, for, for Democrats to be elected. So um, what what is the picture there? I mean, is it time for us to accept that the US is giving up on Europe? It, you know, we, we thought Trump did it was going to do it last time, just about clung on, but now it's sort of going to happen. I think the Trump administration, this is again a little bit like Putin in Crimea in 2014. That should already, in terms of Russia, should have signaled to us that this is going to be a severe problem and this is going to be a full attack on everything that underpins the European order or the EU system and even the UK's position in relationship with the rest of Europe. Right? I mean, and then time was wasted. And I think the risks are, I mean, the Democrats could still win. Right, they still they still could have a geopolitical success yeah. and economic growth. Let's not be too doomer-ish about that. But the reality is, Europeans need an insurance policy, right? They need a strategic and military security insurance policy. This kind of rock-solid certainty that we have that the Americans would never leave the Europeans in the lurch has was shaken by the Trump administration. If anybody did not realize that Europeans need to develop, and I, I, the, the current trendy term is strategic autonomy, it used to be called CSTP. There are all kinds of different acronyms and buzzwords used for this. But I mean, in simple terms, develop the military capacity, capabilities, and coordination structures to be able to act alone and mobilize military and security resources if the Americans aren't willing to help or not willing and able to help. That's the, the foundations of European uh, strategic autonomy. And because of the weird, this, this remarkably sort of anti-Europhobic environment in UK discourse, if you raise the term of European strategic autonomy, you get accused of being, I don't know, pro-French or pro-Napoleon or Hitler or, you know, <laughs> going for the Fourth Reich. But this is fundamentally in Britain's self-interest as well. Britain does not have to be part of the European Union or say, that's, I don't think a European army is the end product of this. Maybe it's just more integrated European military structure. But Britain, for example, could at least, if it played a big role in planning and developing this, it could at least make sure that this is done through the structures of NATO that already exist, rather than setting up a separate EU structure. I think it's actually, in a sense, some ways to Britain's 
advantage that um, Sweden and Finland are joining NATO, meaning that the great bulk of EU states, member states, are also members of NATO, and that the extent to which the EU's institutional and strategic priorities are merging in, or you know converging or, or drawing NATO maybe towards them. And that's not a problem for the UK. That's good for the UK because that means the UK as a key actor in NATO can still play a big role in influencing EU member state and wider EU thinking about security and defense strategy. So it's actually this idea of developing strategic autonomy is an enormous opportunity for the British because it provides this debate and structure where the British, you know, whatever happens with Brexit can say, well, we're always going to you know, look out for our shared interests and we have all these assets if the British continue to properly invest in defense, which is another question, yeah. to contribute to a shared structure that we have in case the Americans leave. And I actually think increasingly, it's not, not a matter, if I look at the debates in the United States about China, and the focus on the Indo-Pacific, and the extent to which a large part of the US-American elite feels profoundly threatened by, I don't know whether they really need to be, that's a different question, but they feel profoundly threatened by China's you know, geopolitical rise and expansionist tendencies, say, of the Xi Jinping you know, government and all the rest. You know, the, I think it's a matter now of when the Americans reorient themselves. And a final point. I think the Americans, the, the, the risk date in terms of American commit, commitments specifically to dealing with Russia is not this year's election, because as long as Biden is in the in, in, is president, there are enough people in the Republican Party who will swing behind, for their own ideological reasons, will swing behind supporting Ukraine and containing Russia. The danger point is the 2024 presidential election. Yeah. Because once the presidency is in the hands of somebody like, it's not clear whose side DeSantis is on. Trump, we know. Mm. You have to look at the rest of the GOP field. Right. But Once it's, it's all fairly Trumpian, isn't it? Whether it's, it's pretty Trumpian. Trump I think DeSantis is interesting. I mean, but we'd have to take a look. But the risk is whoever takes over, if it's a Republican, suddenly that coordinating and mobilizing center of the presidency is gone. So suddenly those Republicans who want to support Ukrainers are on the back foot within their own party. And the Democrats, you can forget anyway in that context. I know it's unlikely, but I think we really need to think in those terms that, you know, we have to think very clearly that the Europeans need to really start looking at what they've got, which at the moment isn't enough by far, but they need to develop a coordinating capacity as a fallback if the Americans go. Probably too many of your listeners are British, so you don't know NFL football, American football. Well, yeah, I, well, I don't know it. So you'll have but to American football, there's the quarterback. Mm. The guy who decides and shapes the play is the quarterback. Currently, in European defense and security in NATO, and that also goes for the EU strategic priorities, the quarterback is the United States yeah. and the American president. And Europe needs its own quarterback. If the Americans walk off the field, the Europeans will end up looking around at each other saying, who's the quarterback now? We hope you find these war bulletins valuable amongst the huge amount of information out there. So don't forget to subscribe and help spread the word by rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other app that has ratings. And if you really like the show, you can support us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, and help shape future episodes, all from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.